Hey there, welcome to episode 38 of Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at what makes them do what they do. I'm Pete Townsend, your co-host on Money Never Sleeps, along with a fantastic, although not available this week, Owen Fitzgerald. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is kindly sponsored by Ireland's fintech and financial services recruitment specialist, Top Tier Recruitment. If you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, we highly recommend you have a chat with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com and tell them we sent you. This week, we're giving you a special episode of Money Never Sleeps, taking a look inside diversity and inclusion in tech in Ireland and beyond. To help us, we brought back Lisa White, founder of Spireworks, Paul Smith and Laura Smith, the co-founders of Top Tier Recruitment, and we welcome Vessi Tasheva onto the show for the first time. She's a founder of Vessi.com and a diversity and inclusion consultant in her own right. Each one has a unique view of the world and their place in it, both as professionals and as individuals. We went deep with this episode and it runs a bit longer than usual, but we think you'll enjoy it. On with the show. Money never sleeps, pal. Here we go again. Welcome to Money Never Sleeps. We're here in WeWork Dublin Landings, the offices of our sponsor, Top Tier Recruitment. I'm Pete Townsend, and we're unfortunately again without Owen Fitzgerald this week as he got called away while we were recording this. Um, we are opening up the format for today with a different approach. So Owen and I had been talking for a while about taking a look at diversity and inclusion into the, in the entrepreneur circuit and on the tech scene and in Ireland in general. And we've got a few friends joining uh, around the table today for us to do just that. Um, so before we get started, I'll just uh, do a quick round the table um, and then everyone that I have here will, will give a bit of a quick overview about what they're up to. So we have Paul Smith, one of the co-founders of Top Tier Recruitment. Uh, we have Laura Smith, the other co-founder of Top Tier Recruitment. Uh, we have Lisa White, the founder of Spireworks. And we have Vessi Tashiva. Did I say that right? Tashiva, yeah. Uh, Tashiva, right? Tashiva. So I knew that was the alternate <laughs> pronunciation. I, I nearly said that, but I didn't. Who's a diversity and inclusion consultant um, at Vessi.com. Where did you come up with that name for your business? I know. I just thought about it really hard. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was basically looking for a free domain with a few characters. So was and like, it was Vessi. available. Vessi.com was available. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I looked at that today and I'm like, how did she get that? How much did you have to pay for that? Nothing. I can tell you. Ah. <laughs> I did actually buy it from someone who owned it. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, okay, so Paul, given that we'll, we'll, we'll go men first today, given that it's International Women's Day. <laughs> um, Paul, just give a quick intro as to you know who you are and what you're doing. Uh, yeah, so um, set up Top Tier Recruitment. We're in year four now. Um, so I look after all of the non-technology recruitment that we do. Um, and you know why we're here from my side anyway clients have been talking about diversity and inclusion for a long long time but it, it always kind of felt to me that uh, it was a little bit light a lot of clients asking more and more about what we can do I think it goes beyond just a, a diverse slate of candidates at senior levels so that's why we, we did the report we wanted to do something a little bit more substantive that would start a conversation give people ideas etc okay great thank you Laura um, I look after technology recruitment. Um, so as everyone knows, technology recruitment is very, very hot and it really is diverse with the exception of the gender divide. So that was kind of my approach to the diversity and inclusion report. Okay, I get it. Great. Bessie? Well, I work with companies to help them identify and remove obstacles to inclusion. These are mostly companies in Ireland and Bulgaria. So I'm originally Bulgarian. Yeah. I've been in Ireland for over four years now. Um, so I started with the report because I wanted to give a platform to companies to show the good practices they, they have or where they got stuck. And for those who are reading the report to re reflect on their values and hopefully get inspired. Okay, gotcha. Lisa? Thanks, Pete. I uh, run a business called Spireworks, um, which aims to disrupt the management consulting industry by doing, you know, short, sharp, four to six week increments of change, as opposed to these big, you know, multi-million dollar change programs that we're all familiar with. Um, and obviously, diversity and inclusion being a female in, you know, a tech driven industry um, and in the startup community is of fundamental interest to me. And I deliver a lot of work for clients around 
organizational change, innovation and diversity, both physiological and cognitive, is a massive factor for that. Gotcha. Thank you, Lisa. And I forgot to say to Lisa, welcome back to the show. You were on episode eight. So thank you for all thank our you. listeners that want to go back and have a listen to, uh, to, 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 to more about Lisa. And then Paul and Laura Smith were on episode 17. Um, so you can go back to that one as well and, uh, and have a listen. So just to get things started, guys, I want to tell a little bit of a story. Um, I am a bit of a storyteller, as, as most of you know. Um, and I do sometimes embellish, but I'm going to tell this one straight from the heart. So I was at an international cybersecurity forum uh, conference in Lille in France, a lovely place back in January. A um, little bit of snow going on, but uh, not a whole heck of a lot. And the conference was huge, big cybersecurity conference. And there was at least 300 companies there that were, um, you know, had stands set up and having conversations with people walking around. When I first got there, I was doing a panel. Um, but before the panel, I walked around to try to get a feel for it. Um, it was all in French. So it went mostly right over my head, stopped and had a conversation with a couple of people. Um, but I stopped uh, at one point, there was a whole bullpen really full of people coding. It looked like at least there were very skinny tables, much like the one that we're sitting at here now for our listeners. It's about probably a little bit less than three feet wide. Um, and there was 15 people on either side of the table, um, each one with a laptop in front of them. And they were all looked like without me understanding what was going on in some type of coding competition or hackathon going on. Right. Um, and these tables with 15 people on each side, so 30 people at each table, there was probably three or four rows of the table, maybe five rows of the table out of 150 people. If you do the quick math that were sitting there in the coding, um, there were three women. So I stopped to count just out of curiosity to say, OK, I see a lot of men here. How many women are actually there? And there were three. Right. I think for me, that is kind of the first barrier. Um, and I've got a sister who is a rocket scientist, so she's knocking down the borders. Um, but she was never a coder. She was just an engineer, right? And I say just an engineer, um, and she'll come back and kill me for saying that. But, um, you know, there is how do we start to break down that barrier? And what are the ways to start, um, you know, changing things in the industry? Lisa, do you want to start, given that you got the biggest smile on your face right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, I will. Um, I wanted to jump in a couple of times in that. It, one, you should have brought me with you. I would have spoken French and I would have argued them all down. Yeah. Um, two, uh, you're dead right, I think. you know. So I went to university 15 years ago. Oh my God, am I that old? Um, 15 years ago today. Uh, and uh, there were about 150 people in my course as well. And like that, three women two of which weren't first language English and didn't want to speak to me. And the rest of the people in my course didn't want to speak to me because, you know, they'd never seen a woman, they'd never interacted with a woman before. And the, the actual, the, the, the statistics haven't changed an enormous amount. That's what's shocking to me right now when I look at my niece coming through university or my nephews coming through school. Um, and I, I, I'm realising, I had an argument with somebody on Twitter this morning about this, right? Um, the, I actually got really angry and I'm really wound up today, I must add that. As you do. Um, yeah. as, as you do, right? Um, I'm wound up over, you know, the conversations and the polemic that are going on on you know, radio today, on Twitter today, online regarding International Women's Day. And regarding, you know, there are so many comments made, particularly in politics today. Now, I won't name the one that was being discussed, but, you know, you only have to mention the word Trump and there are lots. Yeah. Okay? Um, and, and lots of people... Often women come out and say, well, this is a gender issue. A derogatory comment made to a woman is a gender issue. And you'll have an, an onslaught of men and women who come out and, you know, argue that and say they're ashamed to call these things a gender issue and we should be allowed to criticize each other. And what people are missing is that the moment you make a derogatory comment to a marginalized community, it excludes that community. And don't get me wrong, I'm... I count myself as a woman, as a gay woman in that marginalized community, but I'm certainly not the most marginalized. And the more derogatory comments toward marginalized communities that we put up with as people with some amount of privilege, the more we exclude people further down that chain of patriarchy, if you will. So, you know, I'm sure you, you didn't see one black woman at that table of coders. No, I didn't. And how horrific is that? Um, and, and how much how much of an impact does it have on on little girls growing up seeing that there are no 
coders of, of uh, female origin or, or people of color at that table. Well, hopefully no parents brought their kids to that conference that day. <laughs> well, fair point, fair point. Pardon my anger. But, you know, I, I think we need to start to A, talk openly about these things and B, it needs to be okay for, to, for us to call these things out as gender issues or as di- diversity issues or inclusiveness issues because... We all, particularly in the Western world, around this table, we all sit here in a position of privilege. And the thing that we can do to, to break down that privilege and to open up the doors for diversity and inclusion is to acknowledge our own privilege and use that to champion the positions of people below us in that chain of privilege. And that's what I try to do. I was at a conference, uh, another conference last year, where Catherine Petralia um, from Cabbage, which is a SME lender in the U.S. or fintech, um, was was speaking, and she said something to the effect of, "Listen, when roles are up for grabs, it's okay to take a day and say we're just going to interview women today, and that's it, right? And you know, and gay." It, Basically, her saying that seemed to give the men in the crowd the permission to do just that. Um, And she also said something to the effect of um, the most effective, supportive thing that she ever saw a man do, uh, a colleague of hers, um, was to make sure when they were all walking into a boardroom um, that he actually reserved the center seat for her and kind of muscled his way in to get the center seat at the table so that she was front and center. Right. And he would sit next to her. That's an admission Um, of his own privilege. Exactly. And using his privilege to further the cause of people with less privilege. Yeah. That's what inclusion and diversity is. Yeah. And, you know, you try to think about that and where, you know, in today's society, um, and I think we're almost past this at this stage where it's like, do you hold the door? Do you not hold the door? I don't even think about whether it's a man or woman behind me. I just hold the door. Right. For people coming in behind me. Right. Yeah. But like, but I don't think we are past it because like we listen to news talk because I stopped listening to FM 104 when I turned 30 for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, Just they, a couple of years ago, Paul, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks. Um, oh, last but, week. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, people still talk about it all the time and you do get the whole, will I hold a door open thing or the, uh, will I let a woman sit down on the Lewis thing? Yeah. And it's like, I just don't get it because people are, are people get so charged about it. But, but I think that's what actually stops the diversity and inclusion agenda being pushed forward. So, like, I, I agree 100% with, with everything that you said. Um, but once you start going down the road of um, all-day interviews for or for just women, yeah. then then it becomes an issue for, for men, and men get have an issue with that because the automatic mindset for a certain cohort of people is... Uh, is then that's that's biased towards that you're trying to do something that changes the bias but it's a bias so do you know where I'm kind of going I know where you're coming from I I kind of feel like my head's getting a little bit muddled talking about it but it's it's just something that kind of blocks it going forward and I think it's anytime you come up with a block and I'm sure in in what you do it's overcoming all of these blocks all the time absolutely Um, when people come up against a block they just stop and they don't Absolutely. do anything anymore. Absolutely. And I think that it's such a charged issue. And you can see, you know, that, that you, you've been fired up by the, yeah, the thing on Twitter today. I am but, angry today. Yeah, but yeah. That's, that's something that, that, uh, that people back off of. And I think right? particularly in kind of large corporates, um, <clears throat> you don't want to address an issue like this. And we had some people who wanted to contribute to the report, but external comms said no. We, we can't talk about this. It's too emotive. It's too, you know, out there. We don't want to even be involved in this discussion. Yeah. So how can you not talk about it externally? Or how can you talk about it internally if you can't talk about it externally? Can I jump in and add there? Like, Paul, I, I really, I actually really appreciate you calling out your perspective on this because the one and the most important thing regardless of what your view is even if you think I'm an angry feminist going on about these issues or other people are um the most important thing is to call it to talk about it yeah, and if in doubt exactly. ask yeah you know if you think you, if you've opened a door for somebody or you've you've let somebody sit down in the Lewis and you think oh maybe I've offended them you know like I've done that you know, forgive me but I've done that for a pregnant woman yeah and then thought oh my god maybe I shouldn't have done that you know Say it. Just say it out loud. And I think we're devils in Ireland for not yeah, saying yeah, things yeah, out yeah, loud. Yeah. Yep. And I think of, of the companies that you've um, reviewed, if you've gotten the direct the, the guidance that um, we're not going to say anything about this externally, then shame on them. Shame on them. And they're doing far too little then for 
the furthering of diversity and inclusion. And I l- let me add, right, it's a shame in some respects that I'm, I'm a woman and, and gay then in this conversation. Um, I'd love to be saying it shouldn't be about physiology. It's not about, you know, what's between my legs or, you know, who I go home to or, or the colour of my skin. It's about cognitive diversity. Diversity in thinking is what makes businesses Big more time. profitable. Yeah. Yeah. There's evidence to suggest that businesses with more diverse boards make easily 20% more money. Um, but, and you're right, I deal with this all of the time in my change programmes, um, saying that out loud and doing something about that puts people who have been in a privileged position into a fearful place. And if we don't call out that fear and talk about it and deal with it, and I acknowledge that, I acknowledge that it's removing a bias actually does mean deprivilegizing, if that's a word, white men. And, and we have to talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah. I want to. I want to come back to fear, Fessy. You're about to say something there. Yeah, because um, we're talking about women and technology, and you said something very important, Lisa, about um, you know women of color or um, you know people with disabilities, etc. Like it's you know this uh, uh, concept of intersectionality, mm-hmm. and um, it bothers me, especially today when I see like there is probably like twenty panels and this feels like it's it's one of them and i'll explain why um it's only white people talking about gender diversity yeah. and um it's it's yeah it's um it is it is uncomfortable because it feels like yeah you know we did it we have uh, you know let's say a good gender split on this panel or any any other discussion and many voices are not heard they don't get the visibility um um Image magazine in Ireland did a did like a list of um, top women for two thousand and eighteen or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you know, it's great that there were fantastic Irish women there. The problem is that the list itself, beyond the gender itself, wasn't diverse in any way. No, there were there there was a lack of non-binary people or people with disabilities or mm-hmm. uh, just anyone. Like twenty percent of people who live in this country are not irish yeah right mm-hmm. now is there 20%? was not even yeah it's, wow. it's 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 approximately 20 percent. i don't have the consensus but it's you know it's roughly if you go to a classroom nowadays it's half of the class is you know doesn't look what your classrooms probably Indeed. look like and you spoke about privilege uh, me moving to ireland four years ago um you know, I don't, I'm not a person of color. Yes, I'm a gay person, but I had a very warm and welcoming experience because I kind of look like the majority of the people in this country. Um, I'm not Muslim. I, I'm not a person of color. So I recognize my privileges. I'm fluent in English mm-hmm. most of the time. <laughs> you're, you're doing pretty well, yeah. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think for... The discussions when we talk about gender, when we have women organizations, uh, etc., you know, advocating for women, regardless of if it's in tech or not, it's very important to also look at ourselves and be like, are we inclusive? Because the exactly. history of feminism is not inclusive itself. Yeah. Um, the role of um, women of color has been very important in it, but when white feminists had to choose whether to further their rights or the voting rights of people of color, um, they chose their own rights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So well, it can be very controversial, like within a minority itself. Um, so yeah, the, the more open we can we can have it, and the more there is a conversation, the better. And uh, regardless of how we see things, you know, even in this discussion, um, the conversation is key. It is. It is. And it, looking looking. You know, at the at the corporate side as well, and I, me just reflecting on my time in the uh, in the banking industry and asset management, working for a French bank for ten years. Um, I think it's just with the culture of the business and where it came from that expanding out of France all over Europe and then going to Asia, and then conquering well, trying to conquer the U.S. Right, that was the last market that they went after, and then all the competitors were um, starting in the U.S. and then expanding globally from the U.S. to the rest of the world. One of the things that I noticed, at least in the difference in working for this bank was that 
um, the mix of people was far different than I would see in the American competitors, even here in Ireland. So each one of these banks had branches here, all the competitors in the bank I was working for, all branches here in Ireland. Um, and it just happened to be that the group of people that I work with that were a bit bit more diverse. And it wasn't just in Ireland, it was like all the global projects that we were involved with. Um, and there was a lot more uh, you know, of a contribution. And Lisa, you mentioned cognitive diversity um, in coming from folks from India, um, from Malaysia, Asia, from Hong Kong, um, a few folks that were, were coming on board from the U.S. And it wasn't that U.S. dominant voice and that American dominant culture. Um, and I could say that as the only American in the room, right? Um, <laughs> it was a natural recognition of everybody's on the team. Everybody's a stakeholder here. Everybody's going to have a contribution. Um, and that just happened to be a nice benefit of the type of business that I was working for. Um, is there a route to actually get to that point w across the board on a more extensive uh, basis? I don't know. But, you know, uh, Vessi, looking at the report that you did and Paul and Laura looking at the report that you guys did, um, you both had an outreach into the corporate world, right, here in Ireland. Um, what were some of the key themes that you guys discovered with these reports that you did? And Paul and Laura, we'll start with you guys. Yeah, I think for, for me... Um in the corporate world, I think diversity and inclusion has become a real tick box exercise. And there is a massive focus on, I suppose, the gender more than anything. But as you said, Pete, it's it's more about culture. And I think it's difficult for them to embrace it because it's very hard to put metrics on it and measure it. It's it's qualitative. It's it's qualitative as opposed to quantitative. So I think for a company setting out a strategy at the at the very very beginning is is absolutely key. But I think there there is a block because it's so hard to measure. Okay, Paul, what were some of your reflections on your report? Um, Coming at it as the white male. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, straight white male. Um, there's a whole load of different things. Um, I think the the tick boxes is an important one. Um, the one thing that we're always asked from a recruitment perspective from a lot of large clients in particular um, who, who say they care about diversity or, or whatever is uh, deliver us a diverse slate of candidates. And it tends to be only at senior levels. And I remember I was at a 30% club talk um, a few years back. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, for someone who works in recruitment, I'm really bad with names. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, the company he was in, which I won't mention, did, did really well. It was a global company on an Irish branch, did really well globally um, in terms of uh, how they implemented a, a diversity initiative and was specifically around male, female. And the question was, you know, actually came up about recruitment. Is it just focus on bringing women in at the top and, you know, hopefully it'll filter down? It's absolutely not. It's about setting the foundation at the bottom yeah. and making sure that it grows up through the company. So getting everything right from the bottom up is is absolutely the most important thing. And how do you do that? I haven't a clue. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I, I think there's a whole load of different answers and I think that's one of the problems. But I think it needs to be something that works for a company itself. Um, and I actually think it's probably more about inclusion rather than diversity. I think if you have inclusion, the diversity will come. So if, you're, if you have a mindset that is open to being inclusive, regardless of, of, of sexual orientation or male, female, if you're happy to say, you know, we will look at people from all sorts of different backgrounds and be open to what they have to say and listen to them, then I think that creates an environment where diversity will breed. So um, the, the whole group thing, group think thing to me was really interesting because I think it strips out, kind of strips out the, the gender and, and, and sexuality divide and, and all of that stuff. Um, and in recruitment, one thing I used to always do, and I probably still do a little bit of, if I'm honest, is if a hiring manager is hiring for a particular role, I look at their profile first and I look for people who were them five years ago because in all likelihood, they want to hire someone who is just like yeah. them. Yeah. That's groupthink. Yeah. And that's, I know it was in the Nuremberg report around why the, the banking crisis happened and it was a major contributing factor. But if, if we can hire within financial services outside of, you know, Become who did accounting or someone yeah. who did banking and finance, or whatever, get someone in who has a different thought or, or different ways of doing things. Uh, and so I'm rambling a bit, but no, 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 keep going. Coming into coming into a building like this where we're one small company uh, as part of two and a half thousand people, and the majority is tech and startups, and just yeah. totally different to what we do. I chat to people in in the canteen every day, and they're talking about completely different things that I never see. Mm -hmm. And I think it's made me probably a little yeah. bit more. 
open-minded and, you know, willing to listen to other people from different backgrounds and different ways of thinking about things. But so I think the main thing for, for me is probably try to be inclusive in how you think about things or encourage inclusivity from that perspective. And I think everything else may follow from that. Yeah, I think but the, I'm not an expert. The, there's a structural element here, I think. And Lisa, we, we've had chats about this. Um, Groupthink, yes, absolutely. And I think that plays into to, to this thing I'm about to go into, Lisa, is that, you know, uh, just knowing your business, Lisa, and your approach that um, when you are building a relationship with a buyer of your management consulting services, I don't even want to call it management consulting. I just want to call it the your thing, right? Changing uh, the world four changing to six the world. weeks at exactly, a time. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, that there is a um, kind of going along with groupthink a bit that you get a kind of very confident senior executive um, that thinks they have it all figured out and they know the right direction to go and they know what they think the solution is to their problem. Um, and they say, can you provide the solution lease? You say, of course I can. I'm going to spend four to six weeks with you kind of picking that apart a little mm -hmm. bit though. And you may not say that, but you're kind of, you're, you're, you're going in there to figure things out initially mm -hmm. um, and start to, you know, uh, figure out what the true problem is. And when I talk about your business to others, Lisa, what I talk about is, you get into that first room and you sit down with that first team and you kind of have that conversation. You figure out what the problem is. And that team then says, well, the problem isn't in this room. It's in that room behind us. Right. So you go through that door, Lisa, and you sit down with the next team and you figure out, well, there is a problem here. But that team says, well, it's not that functional unit. It's this functional unit. And what you always tend to come back to is the hiring. Right. And you get to the very basis of how people are hired based upon groupthink, the hiring manager looking for the same person they're looking for. And one of the last things that I did in the corporate world was to say, how can we build a more inclusive approach to recruiting, to to bringing people in um, where we have a number of stakeholders that agree on the types of skills we're looking for and everybody is that is taking part in the hiring process and the interview kind of takes a more objective approach than just you know this confirmation bias of looking for the same type of person that you work with five years ago or that you're looking for yourself five years ago um in a very long and rambling way um <laughs> the point that i'm getting to is that I think there is some type of structural approach that we can take here in the corporate world um, to build this stuff in from the bottom up, you know. And Paul, you said you don't know, but I think, I think you're you're you uncovered a bit of that by saying yes, it is groupthink. That yes, it is that that is part of the problem, and that how do we blow up groupthink? But but but, but the other thing is, uh, sorry to interrupt, but but. <sighs> I'm without trying to sound self-registered, but by saying I don't know, I, I don't think there's a problem with saying you don't know. But at least you're starting a conversation. Absolutely, no, no, say you don't know. Kudos, no, that's, kudos that's come up with some ideas. Like, yeah, yeah no, and that, that's what I'm saying is that I, I, you said you don't know, but I think you do know. Um, and I think nice you, you know, <laughs> um, and, and that in, in your subconscious, it, it's there and you know, um, and you said it, that it is, you know, people looking for people like themselves, right? And that's who I want to hire, is someone that I think will be just like me, that I can, yeah. you know, I can, I, I can, a malleable person that I can shift and mold into, you know, an image of myself, mm -hmm. right? Which is not the right way to go Look, about what's things. important to start with in what I'm gonna say is that that's normal human behavior. You know, surrounding yourself with people who look like you, that think like you, this is normal, it's okay. And actually, you know, I'll make one comment about, you know, my angry feminism in the background here, but that men aren't the enemy of feminists, just like the privileged, the white, for example, are not the enemy of the of, of, of uh, uh, people of colour. Um, you see, I, I mess up my own language with this, yeah. right? Um, but it's, it's the patriarchy, let's say, that is the enemy of the system of... of ugly hierarchy that we've created. And frankly, you know, I do a lot of work in, in big corporates, like you've you've implied, Pete. A lot of work in financial services around the world, some in public sector, non-profit, some in retail. Um, and every organization is the same. It's all the same because it's all just filled with human beings, human beings that have surrounded themselves with and and often promoted and championed people that look like themselves. And that's okay. And I'm not criticizing anybody for that. However, it does mean, and the first step in all of my four to six week engagements is to try to get the people in the position of privilege 
to understand themselves first. Self-leadership is the first thing um, any leader needs to, to look at before they're able to, to properly lead a group of diverse people mm-hmm. or a, or a high-risk um, change, whether that be new technology, whether that be in this crazy society that we live in now. If you want to get real difficult innovation done, you've got to be able to look at yourself first. So that's where we start, always, yeah. regardless of what the project is. And, and honestly, um, the, the, you're dead right that the, both of you, that the trick is to hire some of the right people and to start to look at um, that group think, but not to beat ourselves about it. It's not not beat not beat yourself over the the back with a stick. This is this is about recognizing it, talking about it, and trying to consciously create a culture inside our organizations that um, accepts that diversity of thinking, that accepts a different opinion, and that's as important for me to be okay with um, uh, the man on Twitter that thinks the derogatory comment about a woman is is not sexism, as it is for, for him to be uh, accepting of my opinion that it is. And both opinions can coexist together, and that's okay. We can still work together and get stuff done. Yeah. I, I, I think there was a big um, news piece yesterday in the Financial Times about Goldman Sachs have finally gotten, uh, gotten rid of their dress code. Um, and they say people don't need to keep wearing that investment banker uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they, they started to relax a bit like that on the tech side uh, last year, perhaps. Um, but what happened was that not everybody was quite relaxing yet because I think the senior managers didn't want the team to think that they didn't actually have any client meetings that day, mm-hmm. right? Because it was like, if you are gonna have a client meeting to put a suit on, right? So, um, you know, but, but that started to unleash some of this that, Yes, there are some groupthink trends behavior, how people are doing things. Um, let's do it the same way as everybody else is doing. And, and you know, again, blowing that apart, Vessi, in your report, um, you looked out across a number of different verticals. Um, and the one part of it that I was able to get to before today um, and that I actually looked at last month when it came out um, was the venture capital focus that you did. And I thought that was quite interesting. Um, venture capital has gotten a, um, you know, wraps on the knuckles over the last couple of years uh, globally because of the male dominance of that. Um, and, you know, the, the how that then leads to the tendency for male founders to get funded over female founders, right? Um, and particularly in Ireland, we see quite a lot of that. I think it was last year, um, or perhaps in 2017, that it was 95% um, of the founders in of Irish startups that got funded were male. Um, so, what, uh, Vessi, what were some of the, the interesting things that you might have uncovered with your report um, along those yeah, lines? Yeah, so I spoke to Draper Spread, Cosmova Ventures, and Diversity VC, and the way they look at it is it's very similar to when you're hiring if you limit yourself to let's say male founders that that's that's not the whole market yeah um the issue is that in uh, some countries like germany at the moment um some female entrepreneurs don't feel like pursuing their idea because they don't think they will get the funding because of prejudice and that's why it's important to see um, female VCs. There are um, a lot of firms who are that are focusing more on having more diverse um, venture capitalists. That is the best way to move forward. It's same. It's the same with event organizers. Very often they're like, how do we get more? You know, a better gender split or just a more diverse crowd in general. And I say, well, if your hosts, you know, look exactly the same there is no way you can artificially just attract people the same way in hiring if your leadership team is you know has pretty much the same profile when if you put them next to each other how can this attract people who are different from them um and we spoke earlier about inclusion um it's um there is a structure approach um typically when i work with companies we look at the hiring pipeline and then we look at the employee journey Um, and it's important to see how are those different for people with different profiles Um, do let's say women or people of color leave the company much quicker so who gets promoted 
um, who gets more um, budget for trainings or whatever it is. Um, sometimes it could be an issue with the software that's being used at the screening process. Um, why? Well, maybe because we don't have uh, you know, enough women in technology, so the sample that was used yeah. to generate the algorithms was not uh, you know, diverse enough. So these things are super correlated. So when I um, start with uh, any company, we look at the numbers that they have, with, with, uh, think about it as a pipeline, and then um, that gives us a signal, which are the areas that give us like a red flag and where we need more context. And the state of inclusion, doing a diagnostics around that is critical. Um, few people know, um, regardless of their privilege or not, how their uh, the other employees are feeling, especially when we talk about microaggressions. It's important as an employer um, to, or even if as a VC, to talk to the people who are in your community, in your portfolio, or um, among your employees to understand how they feel. So a lot of companies do employee engagement surveys. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of them do them like every two weeks, three questions, or let's say once a quarter, like 10, 13 questions. Um, in those, they have maybe one to three questions that are related to diversity and inclusion in some capacity. So many companies come to me either with um, the problem, we want to attract more people of whatever profile, or we have a low score on inclusion, what, what do we do? So they get the red flag, but they don't have the context. And that's why it's important to dive in and understand why this is happening. The reasons can be so, so many. So um, the way we do it is like we do a survey with all of the employees combined with um, in-person interviews with the employees. Um, and it's important uh, that I'm an external person because they feel comfortable to share their mm -hmm. stories. So now this is all anonymous. So when I go to the leadership team, I can say, this is the data. And this is a quote from someone who, you know, belong has like this profile approximately. And this is how they feel. And it could be, it could be an issue with a specific uh, individual in the company that's creating a toxic environment or maybe, I don't know, the managers are not um, inviting people enough to share their, their mm -hmm. input. Um, but it's, it's really important to uh, get into depth. Um, I'll refer to something very, very far from this topic. There was um, um, a research um, with about 4,000 people, adults in Ireland, and um, they were surveyed if they had ever experienced, um, if they ever had unwanted sexual experiences between age 17. One out of five said yes. Wow. And 47% of the people who said yes, um, turns out they never told anyone before this survey. Okay. And when they were asked why, they said, well, no one ever asked me. And when I spoke to the Immigrant Council of Ireland, they told me the same. Like, even when they get a call for something very severe, so those people need help uh, with, let's say, a racial um, incident, they don't necessarily report it in the company. And, th and those incidents happen in the multinational companies, and not only. In Ireland, th these are companies that have diversity and inclusion leads, a lot of policies mm -hmm. in place. But when we are not proactive in talking to our employees to listen to them, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they will always come to us. Yeah. Especially like, let's say all of the leadership or whatever um, is in this case, uh, mostly Irish, mostly, you know, the same profile. How do you come and explain a microaggression around or a joke that is racially uncomfortable for you mm -hmm. and the Irish people don't like confrontation yeah. when talking about feelings. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. You're talking about feelings and you're telling them that my, they might be wrong. So this is like, it's like a triple no it, culturally. It is it. I mean, you know, moving to Ireland 13 years ago, that it seemed like people just don't like to make a fuss about things. Um, you know, is it people being more laid back or is it just... I think we don't want to offend people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's a bit of that. And I think that is an issue as well in Ireland specifically mm -hmm. because um, people don't know the language to use anymore because I think sometimes the language changes yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. So you, you don't want to say the wrong thing and potentially offend someone. So you just don't say anything. 
you know yeah. that's a very Irish kind of I don't know it. if I don't know if I'd agree okay um, I'm not sure maybe it maybe it depends maybe it depends on who you're you're talking about I just you know I, I think there's an amount of complacency in Irish culture which you know there's so much possibility here right now there's so much diversity in Dublin there's so much going on in the tech world you know with Brexit there's so much opportunity for us on, a, on an international stage but like we sit at home and, and don't do much about it like I, and I speak of I speak of my family now I'm, I'm not yeah. gonna ask my sister to watch this right or to listen to this excuse me um but I know you know she'd be the first to whine about income tax, to whine about the National Children's Hospital, to whine about this fiasco or that fiasco, but not get out and do something about it. And I, so I lived abroad for a long time. I lived in Switzerland. And, you know, I think, you know, acceptance of other cultures is also part of the diversity and inclusion issue. And I think we're very quick as English speakers to be arrogant about our ability to, to debate and argue in these kind of scenarios. So I really appreciate that you've got a non-English speaker here, um, guys. Well, well done. Uh, but I... I lived in France for, for, for many years and, you know, they'd be the first if there was an issue to get out on the street and shout about it. And there's lots of other negatives about That's French That's the culture. culture, right? It is, and, right? And, and we've talked about the, the Catholic Church in Ireland. And um, I was in my sister's house in Reno over the mm. summer. Um, and a friend of ours, Pat, who's from Galway, um, he had just walked the Pacific Coast Trail or mm. a good portion of it. And he came, he spent a few days with us as well. Um, and I had this theory about saran wrap and I embarrassed myself in front of Pat by talking about this and that um, me moving to Ireland, not able to get good cling film, right? Was so annoying. Now, now Paul, you're shaking your head, but this will get somewhere that actually makes sense. Yes. Yeah, 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 yes, the diversity of the cucumber. Um, and I, I, I I said, Pat, I've been talking about this as an example of moving to Ireland and people not making a big deal about things. I remember in the 80s in the US, there were all these ads about people having trouble with cling film, right? And, you know, plastic wrap, and that you try to pull it out of the box and it wouldn't rip properly. Um, and, or when you did get it out, it would all stick together and you couldn't get it across the bowl right. And, you know, and so, there was a, a campaign to say we have new and improved, right? New and improved saran wrap. And I said, well, that happens because people complained about it. Because in America, people speak loudly about things and they, they make a big deal. Um, and that people in Ireland generally don't. So that's why I can't get good saran wrap. He's like, Pete, where have you been looking? <laughs> and he said, if you get the Hargrave, the, the Musgrave stuff, it's, it's much better. And I said, okay, fine. And he said, Pete, stop talking about that in your examples because that's really not the case. What it is is that for the longest time, um, people viewed the Catholic Church as the voice of reason, right? And that people would tend to default to, well, if the church says not to make a big deal about things, then you don't make a big deal about things. So people didn't. And he said, in the 90s, what started to happen is that with kind of the way the Catholic Church, people started to lose faith in it, that people started to question things. Um, and we have seen a big change in Ireland in the turn of the millennium. Um, you know, in that we, we, where people weren't defaulting to what would the church do? Um, you know, and that that is probably has more to do um, with the changes that we've seen in Ireland in the last 30 years than anything having to do with plastic wrap. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but on, like, I know you, you might disagree, but I really do think Irish people just don't don't want to offend. So like if I think about um, planning an Irish wedding, you, you have to invite someone from the, the Smiths or whatever because yeah. you don't want to offend them. So you get invited to every wedding. Yeah, yeah, there. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not us. But but it's done because you don't you don't want to offend them. And that is why it's done. Or they're yeah. worried that, you know, well, they invited you, so you have to invite them. And it's it's that type of mindset. But and this might sound really off piste, but I was watching Father Ted last night. Yeah. And uh, it was the one where the Catholic Church had banned um, a movie, but for some reason it was allowed on Craggy Island. Right. So the bishop comes along and he gets Ted and Dougal <laughs> off to the cinema to protest. And it was just, it was the scene when they're in the cinema first. So Ted and Dougal are sitting in the in the cinema and uh, they kind of, they're sitting there saying to each other, what we do? And we start booing or whatever. And the lad who owns the cinema comes up and he's, Father, how are you? And, oh, it's great to see you. And how's things? And, you know, not saying, will you please stop? Anyway, would you mind terribly uh, if you could keep it down a little bit because you're ruining other people's enjoyment of the movie? Yeah. So the two boys are sitting there. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem at all. And, you know, but that's that's a really typical thing that Irish people do. It takes us forever to get something done sometimes because we're so afraid of going directly at a problem. 
that we have to go all the way around it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. But that's done because, I think anyway, that's done because we just don't want to offend people. You know, we don't want to hit it hard because they mightn't like us yeah. and then they mightn't like me and there's all that kind well, of thing. Well, my, my wife tells me not to beep the horn at people sitting at a green light in front of me because they may be our neighbor and we might, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't yeah. want to embarrass ourselves by using the horn for, well, that's why it was put there was someone <laughs> sitting there at a green light and blaring your horn and get them to go, right? You know, so... Um, we, um, we tell our clients to think about the difference between intention and impact. So, you know, maybe you're oh, right, yeah. Paul. I, I've been gone from this country a long time. I'm only back a couple of years. And, you know, I, I struggle with that style, if I'm honest. I don't fit as a result. Like, I don't feel comfortable out on a night out with friends in Dublin. It doesn't work for me. Um, I'm much more likely to be found hanging around uh, a, a bunch of Europeans or a bunch of Americans and talking about work or changing the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we have to be careful. If if our impact is not to offend, then maybe the best thing if is our to say. Intention is not to offend. Sorry, yes. Yeah. Pardon me. If our intention is not to offend, maybe the best thing for us to do is to to speak out loud. And if we get something wrong, just to apologize. Like yeah. there's power in being able to say, I messed up there. Sorry, I'll change. Like my lang- use of language earlier. I I made a mess up because my. I have my knickers in a twist about making sure I use people of colour um, because I know that's a big deal at the moment. Um, and and I, I can't even get my head around using non-binary. I'm sorry. I, I try, but I'm learning. Yeah. All I can say is I'm sorry for messing up and I'll do it better next time. And I think we'd, we'd do a lot better as a, as a society if we could do that. Well, it's, it's prefacing things in a conversation, right? And saying, listen, I'm about to go down this path with our conversation. Is this something you're comfortable talking about? Yeah, yeah. Right? Or when you do offend, like you say, listen... That was not my intention, right? And 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 that you know, and it's just being. I think we're f- afraid of anger, and I and I you, in you a world yeah, in a world where people get scared, where we have to deal with fear because we do today. Whether it's organizational change, whether it's societal change, people are, are becoming increasingly fearful of their position and their safety in society. When we have to deal with that, we have to be able to deal with the ensuing conflict when we confront it. Well, I'm going to go from from I'm going to go from Father Ted to Star Wars here. So when you were talking about anger, <laughs> I don't before, like Star Wars pieces. Yeah, <laughs> when you were talking about anger before, yeah. right? What comes to mind is what always comes to mind when people talk about anger um, is Yoda, right, from Star Wars, and who said yes. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hatred. Hatred leads to the dark side. Right? Okay. I'm sure he said it the other way around. Did he? You know? <laughs> so fear. I, I'm with Vessi on this one. I, but I, I, I can explain it in the terms of how Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader, but I won't go there. Okay. Who, who um, thinks pizza geek? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right here. Hands up. Okay. I got two hands up. Um, but that anger that you talked about today from, you know, the, the vitriol going back and forth on Twitter, is that based in fear? You know, maybe a little. Yeah. I am. Um, can I, may I share a personal story? Sure. Uh, okay. My other half is going to kill me about this. Um, yeah. I see you looking at your watch. I'm going to make sure it's quick. Um, <laughs> we are starting the process of having a child this year. Um, obviously my partner's a woman. I announced myself as gay earlier. Um, and I'm, I've gone through easily six months with my therapist talking about, well, could I carry the baby? How would I feel about that? And I am petrified about how I would be interpreted in the highly male and white dominated world in which I operate professionally. And as you can tell, my professional world is my world. It's it, right? Um, I, I, I can't even envisage going into a client and, and being pregnant and growing another human being inside me. And I, you know, call, call me a bad woman for that if you want, but um, yes, it's fear. So yeah, of course my anger comes out of a, a place That's of fear. That's interesting. And I have a lot, I have a lot of work to do on myself on that, for sure. And it's, I, I try to use that, we teach our clients this as well, but I try to use that as, as data. Yeah. You know, what, what, what does my anger about this guy on Twitter say to me? Yeah. What data does it give me and, and, and how can I use that to, to make things better? And I don't always get it right. Um, and the best I can do for, for my clients and my family and my other half and my future children is, is to be able to say I don't always get it right. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest lesson and, that we all have. And that's the thing yeah. is to think about where these feelings are coming from, right? We, we, in the last podcast episode, 
that we had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the one of the people we had on the show, Graham Rodford from Archax, was talking about meditation and martial arts and how he had been med- meditating for a long time and just thinking about releasing that inner monologue that guides you in a certain direction. On the way here today, um, I was on a bike and I was pedaling very fast and I'm like, why am I doing this so quickly? Is there anxiety in me today? And yes, there is anxiety in me today. And where did it come from? Well, this client that owes me a boatload of money has said they're only going to pay me a little bit of it. And so, yes, there was some anxiety in me today. And how do we release that? Right. And you, as long as you could start thinking about things like that, rather than just having that default, I'm going to go get angry about something. Um, I think this is all part of it. This, you know, uh, we're, we've been talking about diversity and inclusion for nearly an hour now, right? And that what we're really coming back to is human nature and human feelings um, and just being respectful of people's differences with how they interpret data and how they interpret what they see in front of them. Right? Yeah, I, I, and I think actually, I think you mentioned it earlier on, Lisa, it's about recognizing that um, two different points of view can coexist. Yeah. You know, maybe it's... Here, here. Absolutely. 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 Okay. On that note, guys, thank you, everyone, for coming on to the show today. Really appreciate that. I think we had a very meaningful, heartfelt conversation here um, that uh, I, I think people are going to enjoy. Um, so, Lisa, thank you so much. Vessi, thank you. Paul and Laura, thank you so much for your contribution today. Awesome to have you all on the show. Thanks, peace. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That wraps it up, folks. Thanks to Lisa White, Paul Smith, Laura Smith, and Vessi Tasheva for opening up their minds this week. Remember, if you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, get in touch with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. Check out the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie to access the diversity and inclusion reports published by both Top Tier Recruitment and by Vessi.com and find out how to get in touch with Lisa, Paul, Laura, and Vessi. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Money Never Sleeps on our iTunes and leave us a review. Each one helps. Or you can subscribe via our podcast website to other media channels like Spotify and Stitcher. So just go to the subscribe page on moneyneversleeps.ie and follow the links. If you're searching directly on iTunes or Spotify, Money Never Sleeps is spelled as all one word. And we're on Twitter at MNS Show. As for me, I increase the odds of startup success. DM me on Twitter at PTownsendNV if you want to know more. And you can follow Owen on Twitter at OwenFitzgerald9. That's E-O-I-N, the Irish spelling of Owen. Finally, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for recording and editing this podcast. Till next time, thanks for listening. See ya. See ya.